On part three of our three decades at the Institute, we feature specific areas of research at the Institute and Orient Healthy Workforce Center. Our mission here at the Institute is to improve the lives of workers through biomedical and occupational research. And we accomplish this through four areas of research, total worker health, sleep and shift work, genome instability in human disease, and treatment recovery and prevention. In this episode of What's Work Got To Do With It, we speak virtually with scientists who conduct research in these four areas and learn how their work adjusts the spectrum of scientific impact from understanding the physiological mechanisms of health, safety, and well-being all the way through behavior change. All right, Dr. Stephen Shea is the Institute's director. He received his PhD from the University of London, and the goal of his research is to understand the biological basis behind changes in disease severity across the day and night, and to understand the physiological and adverse health effects of shift work. Dr. Shea's research touches on our sleep-wake cycle, our circadian rhythms, and how that impacts our health, such as cardiovascular health and the underlying causes of disease. So Dr. Shea, how would you summarize your research and how does it fit into the mission of the Institute? Thank you for that question. Uh, my research, as you said in the introduction, is all about sleep and circadian rhythms. Um, we all know that adequate sleep is essential for health, and we should know that adequate sleep is essential for safety, because you can imagine that somebody who's sleepy driving a car or using, uh, using dangerous equipment uh, would put themselves and others in jeopardy. Um, mm -hmm. So sleep is important. and Sleep is designed to occur at nighttime, but uh, many of us have to stay awake at night and endure that sleepy period to actually work. For instance, night shift workers do that. Uh, a lot of first responders do that. Uh, in addition, there are um, people with sleep disorders that have problems with sleep and, and it's not refreshing to them so that they're walking around during the day tired because they had a poor night's sleep. Examples would be someone with obstructive sleep apnea who struggles to breathe when they fall asleep at night and somebody with insomnia. So they all fit together, the sleep and the breathing and the circadian rhythms. And for me, it's just so fascinating that circadian rhythms exist because it really is our body's internal clock trying to prepare us for what's going to happen during the day based on anticipated needs. So the body anticipates that we're going to wake up in the morning, its cortisol begins to get released into the blood so that you can be prepared for the rigors of the day, standing up, walking around, being active, and eating and things like that. So the body does that because it can't immediately respond to all those needs and get the whole system working very, very quickly. Uh, what it does is it prepares you know, hours before waking up with, for instance, with the cortisol increasing. Now that, so the, the circadian rhythms are generally a very good thing, but what I became very interested in was the timing of some diseases. So asthma is often worse at nighttime, we call it nocturnal asthma, and mm. we don't know if that's because of the activity of the internal body clock, or is it because of being asleep at night or lying down at night, um, or the combination of lying down and sleeping at night when you're at the certain time of your body clock. So it's important to try and find out which of those it is um, so that you can treat appropriately. And we, uh, we pioneered some multi-day intensive lab experiments where we put people in a lab uh, over numerous days and we measure um, probably tens of physiological variables. We take blood every so often 
and um, we allow people to sleep and we take blood from a different room through a long tube so they don't we don't perturb their sleep when we're doing that by doing those things and we do it all in dim light so that people don't know the time of day we can adjust their schedule so they could be awake at night or sleep at night or eating at night or eating during the day and by the end of those multi-day experiments we can tease out the effects on the body of the circadian rhythms alone or the behaviors alone or the combination of the two so it's a really sophisticated cool experiment that allows us to do that and we've been using those to examine things like cardiovascular reactivity to stressors at different times of day so for instance when you exercise is it better or do you have a bigger response during the morning or the afternoon evening or even during the night time and this is all these studies have sort of allowed us to try and work out why do heart attacks occur more frequently in the morning or stroke why does that occur more, more frequently in the morning and even sudden cardiac death so those are the questions we're examining but in addition to that we're studying night shift work and how, how the um, working at night can be bad for your health all of these studies have sort of led to the concept that the circadian system is really a double-edged sword that it's really good for people when they're going to be awake during the daytime it, as I said before, the circadian system is designed to promote health and appropriate responses at a certain time of day. But in some people, those same responses, if they're vulnerable because of, say, underlying cardiovascular disease or cardiovascular risk factors or asthma, then the same mm. response can be dangerous in those susceptible people and lead to adverse events such as um, myocardial infarction and stroke. That was an amazing summary. I mean, like, you know, sleep impacts so many different parts of our lives and it also impacts all types of diseases and also the cardiovascular health, especially with the artificial light and how we're essentially hijacking the system to go against eons and eons of evolution where we're used to the sunlight and the dark cycle. How has this research evolved over the years for you? Well, I started uh, studying sleep back in 1982. I started a sleep lab in the UK, in London, one of the first clinical sleep labs there. Um, I began, began studying the control of breathing you know, wake people, breathing during sleep. And then because sleep is a, one of the most uh, robust circadian rhythms, I began to study circadian rhythms. And I got interested in those questions about why do heart attacks occur in the morning more than other times of day? And that's led me on to the those studies of the circadian rhythms of the cardiovascular system. And after that, I became interested in, in when you mess around with the circadian system, as you do with night shift work and how that causes adverse effects like obesity, hypertension, and cardiovascular disease. So that's how my research has evolved. It's all been in, mostly been in um, studies in humans in, in clinical labs. Uh, but one, once I moved to Oregon and the Oregon Institute of Occupational Health Sciences, I've been involved in collaborating with studies outside the lab as well with, with others in the institute. Awesome, that's fantastic. So Dr. Shane, what are some of the industries that you've worked with here in Oregon? Well, Sam, um, most of my studies have been in the lab do, doing preclinical studies, and mm. I think those are really essential at this moment in time because we're on the cusp of doing me meaningful chronotherapeutic trials as we begin to understand more and more about the, the circadian system and how it affects everything we do, and including the drug targets. So taking a, a medicine at a certain time is going to have a different effect, and the medical system is beginning to understand that. And so there are great opportunities to improve therapy for many diseases based on timing of medicine. 
that doesn't mean you have to buy more and more expensive medicines or even test more expensive medicines. This is just using the same medicines more effectively. So those are the preclinical studies that I do in my lab. But moving to Oregon and the Oregon Institute of Occupational Health Sciences has really enabled me to move some of my research out of the lab and into the workplace. And I've been doing that with collaborations with a number of teams, notably with Dr. Leslie Hammer and her team who are studying sleep health interventions in the Oregon National Guard. Another study I work with, Ryan Olson and his team studying sleep and health in interventions in truck drivers. And finally, a fascinating study with Dr. Nicole Bowles and Shelby Watson and others studying the health and safety effects of the long shifts of firefighters. Awesome, that's fantastic. Like it sounds like there's a lot of great work going on at the Institute on how to optimize sleep. So what brought you here to the Institute and what do you love most about working here? What brought me here and what I love most about it here is really, really the same question, I think. Um, I took an opportunity to move my research from, as I said, from the lab to more applied research. Um, and the Institute was the best place probably in the world to do it. It's astonishing what we do, I think, in the Institute in terms of the, of the complement of basic and applied research going from studying, say, fruit flies or circadian rhythms and sleeping fruit flies to mice to humans in a lab and then, and then applied research in the workforces. That whole gamut from basic research to applied research was an attraction to me, joining OHSU coming from Boston. And since I've been here, I really, enjoy, really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the, the science, as I mentioned, the people and the community. In addition, because of the Institute being in a unique position in the state, receiving some state funds, we have stakeholders across the state. And so it's great to be able to engage with those stakeholders across Oregon and tell them about your research and, and get tips from them uh, about what their needs are and, and where we might do better, better or new research. Those are the highlights for me of the Institute and I enjoy coming to work every day and I only wish I'd come here earlier in my life. <laughs> nice. I feel the same way. Yeah, it's a great place to work. And, you know, we're lucky to have you as our director. And um, thanks for sharing some of your time today. Uh, you're too kind. Thank you. So right now we're interviewing Dr. Karen Winehouse. She currently studies and researches epigenetic changes caused by environmental exposures relevant to human and animal health. And she also has an interest in environmental justice. So Karen, can you talk briefly about your research and how it fits into the mission of the Institute? Um, so the mission of the Institute is improving the lives of workers through biomedical and occupational research. Can you just um, tell our audience members just a little bit more about what you do in terms of epigenetic research? Sure. So as you mentioned, I study how chemical exposures, specifically chemical pollutant exposures, including those that happen at work, can affect what we call epigenetic modifications to DNA. Epigenetic modifications are kind of like dimmer switches, like you might have on your light bulbs, but these are dimmer switches on genes. They can turn gene activity up and down in response to stressors, like pollutants. And this whole field is called environmental epigenetics. We know that people that have pollutant exposures have different epigenetic modifications as compared to people without those exposures but we don't yet know if or how the pollutants cause those differences. We also know that some epigenetic modifications can be stably maintained long after the exposure is gone. This is sometimes called epigenetic memory. 
but we don't know how that happens or if those memories are specific to particular pollutants. It would be pretty exciting if they were specific because then we could look at those epigenetic memories and say that someone was exposed to a specific chemical sometime in the past, which could be helpful for a chemical that doesn't stay around in the body for a long time. And if that chemical causes a disease like cancer, knowing that a worker with cancer was exposed to that chemical could help us understand what caused their cancer. In this case, epigenetic changes would be telling us just that exposure had happened. It's also possible separately that epigenetic differences caused by exposures might also themselves increase risk for disease. So understanding how those exposures are causing the epigenetic differences is a key first step to protecting workers from the health effects of those exposures. And that's what I study, the how. That's very interesting, uh, Karen. And I mean, we always hear about in public health and other studies in general on the dose response in terms of how certain doses of any type of exposure, what, whether it be environmental, can impact our health in some way. And then, of course, you're looking at animal studies and how they translate to humans. So um, appreciate you sharing that information with us. It's all very interesting. I know you've been on at the Institute for a little over a year now, and your research has evolved, um, not just here, but also prior to you coming on board. Um, could you just tell our listeners a little bit more about how your research has evolved? Yeah, sure. Um, it's funny, the question you sent me was really about how my science has changed over the years as a scientist. And, you know, as a junior scientist, we don't really have that many years to have changed over. But the field that I'm in is very young. It's very new. And so it's been experiencing some pretty rapid change which is exciting. So when I first started studying these questions, the field was still in early stages and was still asking really early questions because before you can ask how something happens, which is what I'm asking, you first have to know that it does happen. And that's what everyone was asking 10 years ago. Is there any evidence that epigenetic modifications are even different in people with and without exposures? And now we know the answer to that question is yes. So it's the right time to push the edge and ask, how is that happening? And biology in general has really been benefiting a lot from this boom in technology. And so, you know, where our field, environmental epigenetics, is also, it's not an exception to that. And new tools that are now available, they let us ask complex questions about epigenetic modifications and different cell types and tissue types, how modifications might work together. What happens if we add an extra modification here or take one away there? We weren't able to do that before or ask those questions before, but now we can. So it's an exciting time to be in the field. Yeah, it certainly sounds like a very dynamic field and a lot of questions and answers that need to be um, exchanged throughout, especially on the molecular level. So it's very interesting research that you're doing, and I'm sure it's very complex as well. Um, thank you for sharing that. Um, and I just wanted to kind of in our interview and ask, uh, what brought you here to the Oregon Institute of Occupational Health Sciences, and what do you love most about working here at the Institute? Yeah, really two things brought me here, and they're also the things that I love about working here, apart from doing just really excellent science and, and with a lot of fun other scientists. Um, and those two things are the sense of community here and the interdisciplinary nature of the work that we do here. And as far as community, I've just from the very first day that I started here, I've received really extraordinary mentorship from the senior scientists here and extraordinary support from the junior scientists and the staff. It just, everyone here cares about 
helping the research move forward and helping each other be successful. And it's just a really wonderful environment. It feels like we're all in it together. The interdisciplinary nature of the work, I think, is an extension of community because you know, I'm a bench scientist. I do experiments in cells and mice, and that's great. That's a lot of fun for me. It lets me tease out exactly how something happens because I can control the exposures the mice get and I can manipulate the system. I can add or take away an epigenetic modification, for example. But I'll never really know if what I see in the lab actually happens in real people in the wild unless I work with scientists that study people. And here at the Institute, I get to collaborate with scientists that do study people that are interested in working with me to translate basic science to human populations. In clinical research, people often call that translation bench to bedside. So I like to say the translation that we do here is bench to community, and that includes communities at work. That's that's great. I mean, I feel very similar sentiments to what brought me here was also the very much the bench and the applied side. And then in seeing um, a lot of scientists kind of work together and collaborate, much like yourself and the other scientists around the Institute is very inspiring. And um, there's a lot of great work happening here. So, um, you know, everything that you do is really uh, translating into um, the science um, of the workplace and to bring that beyond. So thank you so much for sharing. And so, yeah, we've heard from Dr. Winehouse today about her research and epigenetic changes and how um, that can cause environmental exposures uh, that are relevant to human and animal health. And thank you so much for joining us. Sure, thanks so much for having me. So today on our podcast, we'll be interviewing Dr. Andrew McHill. Um, we're going to learn a little bit more about his research, specifically his interest in understanding circadian misalignment in humans, for example, things like shift work or jet lag, and how that can impact insufficient sleep, which leads to adverse effects in humans like metabolic health and poor cognitive performance. So we wanted to start uh, the interview off uh, by just telling our listeners a little bit more about your research and how that fits into the mission of the Institute. As you mentioned before, I'm all about interested in learning about how short sleep or sleep restriction and also working and eating at times that our body should be asleep and not eating impact our health and our performance. Uh, and it fits in the Institute really well because we're all focused on Oregon worker health and Oregon health. And a large proportion of our population, even Oregon, about 20% work shift work hours, sometimes during the night or in the early morning hours, uh, which forces them to eat at times when their body's not promoting it and also to not get enough sleep. Because if you try to sleep during the day, if you have to work at night, um, you're really not gonna sleep as well. Even in perfect conditions, you'll probably only sleep about 70% as well. Um, as you would at night, or if you have to wake up really early. Um, in the early morning hours is when we're at our, our cognitive worst. Uh, so when we have to commute early in the morning, we're not at our best performance. And, and we've just shown that eating during that time is also really bad. So pretty much you're telling me that everything that I'm doing in the morning is completely wrong. <laughs> it depends on what time in the morning you're doing it. So um, we, just, we just did a study where we simulated early morning shift work. So people that work before 7 a.m., um, are actually the largest population of shift workers in the country, uh, but nothing is really known about them because people don't really consider it shift work or working at an adverse time. And so we actually brought people into the lab and we moved their sleep or, and, their, and their wakefulness uh, earlier by two hours. So we woke them up two hours than they normally did. 
and then gave them a big sugary breakfast and then measured their insulin and glucose levels and their metabolic rate. And we started to see some very slight changes in metabolism. So they were uh, worse at uh, metabolizing their glucose. Uh, and then they also had a lower energy expenditure initially. And if you kept doing that over time for many years, that could lead to poor uh, health outcomes. So Andrew, how has your research evolved over the years? I know you've been at the Institute for a few years now and working uh, with Dr. Shea and others and collaborating um, on your sleep studies. Uh, can you tell us how your sleep studies have evolved? My research has, was initially started in uh, doing very tightly controlled in laboratory studies in extremely healthy individuals. So we would, we would only study people that slept a certain amount between like seven and nine hours that had perfect health through that we'd bring them in and take their blood and do a full physical exam and then do a full, uh, you know, cognitive test being the battery to make sure that they were uh, healthy and mentally and, and everything. And so we were really measuring just basic fundamental rhythms and, and think, things that happened when someone was at the healthiest of the healthy. When I came to the Institute, and this is how my research has evolved, is we started to reach out into populations that may be more similar to just the general population. So maybe not the healthiest of the healthy individual. And so we started to uh, measure what happens with short sleep and, and working at the wrong time of people that aren't just lean, but also overweight and obese. Um, we've gone out into, um, into the field and started measuring things in actual shift workers, uh, which can get a little bit messier than doing it in the lab, but it's a lot more uh, realistic and, and so that's really how my research has evolved, is that we've moved into different populations and tried to make it more generalizable to the public. And that really leads me to the next question. I know a lot of the research that we study here kind of focuses on a lot of workplaces and what are some areas that you as a researcher has impacted here in Oregon and beyond. So we've started projects with the transportation industry. So as you can imagine, they work at all types of weird hours, really early in the morning, really late at night. People need to get around the city at all different times. So they've been a fun industry and population to work with. Uh, we've also started several projects with fire departments who also have interesting schedules that are greatly needed. Uh, they do a great service for our city, but it also comes at a cost potentially to them having to work very long hours. And sometimes emergencies happen during the night, and so their, their sleep is disrupted. Uh, so we've been starting to branch out and work with them. Um, and then we're also working with more physical labor industries. So uh, working with uh, concrete industries and others that have to work really early in the morning in, in order to get their product out into the world. And so we're trying to see what impact that early morning shift work may have. Great. Thanks so much for sharing. It's It's very interesting to learn about the different types of industries that you're really focusing on and bridging kind of that basic bench science with the applied side um, in terms like in combinations with the studies that you're collaborating on. So thank you so much for sharing. And last but not least, we just wanted to essentially ask, what do you love most about working at the Institute and what really brought you here in terms of the research areas? I think my favorite part of being a part of the Institute is that as a native Oregonian, I feel really called and I feel that it's really great to be able to be giving back to a community that I grew up in and to be actually furthering the health and the knowledge of my fellow Oregonians. And so I think that's really, uh, really great. I remember growing up when we'd drive through Portland, we would 
look up at OHSU as like kind of a castle on a hill or a palace on a hill kind of thing. And, uh, and so it's really neat to, you know, grow up looking up at OHSU and now to be able to work at it and to give back um, to, to Oregonians. Well, we certainly appreciate all the efforts um, that you are in terms of contributing to research in and around Oregon um, and in terms of trying to improve uh, population health for their work. So I greatly appreciate your time. All right. Thanks, guys. Stay, stay thanks, well. Andrew. We'll be talking to Dr. Chuck Allen and how his research areas uh, focus on how disturbance in our circadian rhythms are known to contribute to different diseases and how they can impair mental and physical performances here at home and at work. So Dr. Chuck Allen, can you briefly talk to our listeners about the research that you do and how that fits into our mission? Yeah, so our research is focused on understanding how the body generates a physiological timing signal. As you mentioned in the introduction, uh, we're interested in circadian rhythms, which are 24-hour rhythms in a variety of physical and mental processes. And disruption of these rhythms um, has a profound negative effect on both health and, and performance. And my lab is interested in a very basic science kind of question. We want to understand how a small part of the brain that has about 24,000 nerve cells generates this very precise circadian rhythm that controls rhythms throughout the body. Well, thanks so much for uh, sharing your research, Chuck. I'm sure sleep research has evolved tremendously. How have you seen your own research evolved over the years? Um, I think the biggest change in the field of circadian biology has been the recognition that there are circadian clocks located throughout the body. So I study a small part of the brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And for probably 30 years, we thought that this was the clock, the timekeeper in the brain. And what we've discovered is that virtually every part of the body has clocks. Their liver clocks, their kidney clocks, there's a clock in the heart and the lung. And the part of the brain that I study appears to be important for keeping these clocks in a stable phase relationship. And that when we disrupt the circadian system, what we're really doing is knocking all these clocks out of alignment. The other real change is just the tools, the experimental tools that we have, we can now image our part of the brain for up to three weeks. We can watch the circadian clocks in individual nerve cells, keeping 24-hour time. And so this has allowed us to really ask fundamental basic questions about how these neurons work together to create a 24-hour time signal. Yeah, that's all very... Um enlightening and impactful information because I feel like as me personally I'm always interested in learning on how the things that I can do in terms of sleep can impact my health and just thinking of it from a biological standpoint I'm like I don't even know <laughs> where to start so it'd be great to dig into more of your research and how especially in the brain and how that works and inherently with all the 
technological advancements these days, I'm sure a lot of your research has also progressed and it sounds like you guys are using cutting edge technology to really um, answer some of those research questions. So that's really very interesting to learn about and thanks so much for sharing um, your work on that. I wanted to kind of end with the Institute as a whole. Um, what brought you here to the Institute and what do you love most about working here? So I, I actually came to the Institute. I had a totally different area of research at the time. Um, it was for, focused more on neurodegeneration. But as my opportunities and interests changed, I moved into the circadian field and it was a nice fit for the Institute's goal of, of improving occupational uh, health. I find it a fascinating area of research. And I think the thing I enjoy most about the Institute is the opportunity to work with a, uh, an amazing group of colleagues. There's a really excellent faculty here. They work as a team, they share, they provide lots of uh, incentives and uh, great ideas. And, and it's just a wonderful intellectual environment to do research. Thanks so much for sharing. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of interdisciplinary um, collaboration going on, um, you know, through BASIC in the applied side. And, you know, just seeing kind of the emerging research going on through, especially, um, you know, I'm always very impressed by the sleep lab and the circadian research that's being done here because I feel like it is does make our institute very unique especially at OHSU um, I know there's not in terms of like integration I think we do a good job of bridging um, kind of the translational piece and how that can really emerge through um, in generalizing through our populations especially uh, for the workers so thank you so much uh, Chuck for your time today I know it was a short and brief chat but uh, we really uh, enjoyed learning more about the work that you do here at um, Health Sci. Great well thanks for having me. All right Dr. Suzanne Mitchell is a tenured professor at OHSU in the School of Medicine in the Department of Behavioral Neuroscience with secondary appointments in psychiatry here at the Institute. Her research focuses on behavioral genetics of impulsivity and behavioral economics in animal models, which includes effort-related decision-making in clinical populations. Dr. Mitchell, how would you summarize your research and how does it fit into the mission of the Institute? I would characterize my research interests as being about decision-making. I'm interested in the factors that influence decision-making processes, and I think it's easy to see the relevance to the Institute's mission because decision-making occurs at every level within an organization. So individual workers might use decision-making to set priorities and activities, um, for example, you know, whether to take a rest break or done personal protective gear or whatever and right up at the organizational level the organization might be making decisions about whether to expand business missions or provide wellness enhancement so so i think decision making as a whole has a lot of interest in applications within the institute's interest portfolio 
And for me, I really focus on behavioral economics um, in decision making. So that means I'm really interested in the costs associated with doing a particular behavior and the benefits that you get from doing that behavior. So in, in my lab, with our animal models, we often focus on decisions between different size rewards that also require different amounts of time or different amounts of effort to achieve. And I think you can see how that might also relate to human decisions and also decisions in the work environment. For example, if you've got a report that you need to write, Presumably, there are incentives to finish that report, and you might think about how long it will take you to do different types of strategies to complete writing the report. Do it in all one big, long shot, split it into small parts, different tasks and things. And so we ask the same sorts of things in our animal research, and we also look at what factors might influence decisions. because. Sometimes incentives to do a particular behavior are going to change over time. So if you're thinking about what to eat, you might make very different decisions um, and re regard that uh, piece of chocolate very differently if you've just had a meal versus if you're on a diet versus if you haven't eaten for a while but you're not on a diet. So my research is interested in that and how genetics might influence some of the values of incentives and how you perceive the cost of a different behavior. So that's, that's sort of basically what I do. That's awesome. Yeah, I really like how you framed that um, health and safety. It's essentially a choice. It's a decision that you make every day with what you do. And you know, workers have to prioritize a lot of times between health and safety and also being productive. And that's a real challenge for them. Exactly. And I think that's one of the strengths of the behavioral economics, cost benefit types of approach, because to try and make certain behaviors more likely, we might want mm -hmm. to change the incentive structure. And we might also want to figure out ways to reduce perceived costs. And we do that in the lab, but you can see how that would have, have some applicability out there in the real world. Yeah, hopefully it like helps address maybe policy changes that have to happen in different industries in order to make this choice easier for workers to make. So how has your research evolved over the years? Oh, I started off really just focused on biological aspects of behavior. I was interested in eating behavior and animal behavior. People refer to that as foraging and what, what sort of techniques animals use to forage in their environment, search for food and, and the constraints on foraging. And, and then I, I had the opportunity to go and do a postdoctoral research um, uh, with someone who was interested in human substance abuse. And at that point in time, people were just waking up to the idea that maybe substance abuse 
is also a foraging problem as the mm. uh, a person is looking for substances and weighing prices and hazards of using substances. And so I got a chance to, to develop that. And I, I persisted looking at substance abuse using sort of this behavioral economics framework. But uh, more recently, I've become interested in expanding outside uh, outside that area, and that's one of the reasons that I was so excited to have an opportunity to be involved with the Institute. Awesome, that's great. Yeah, I really like, I guess it's always so interesting to hear the connection between all these different research areas that the faculty have and how it's evolved over the years. What are some of the areas in the field that you've had an opportunity to contribute to? Well, I think there's been three main areas. One of them um, has been the the idea that exposure to chemicals might alter biological processes and alter decision making. So I got the chance to do a little bit of work looking at exposure to lead and how that exacerbates ADHD symptoms. And in ADHD, decision-making processes are altered. People tend to be impulsive. So that's one area. A more recent area has been uh, working with some members of the Institute, particularly Matt Butler and Andrew McHill, to look at the idea of sleep and how fatigue might influence decision-making processes, and I, I'm, I'm excited about that. And I've also had some conversations uh, with the Total Worker Health Group about taking decisions about weighing costs and benefits into, um, into the work life of people. So, for example, bus drivers who are trying to decide when to take breaks, what are the costs of taking a break, angry people at bus stop um, versus <laughs> benefits, you can focus on driving because you're not as fatigued. You aren't thinking about, oh, I haven't had anything to eat for a couple of hours. Being able to move and interact with these other areas has been really exciting for me. Awesome. That's so cool. So it sounds like you've had the opportunity to really expand your research opportunities here at the Institute. Is that what brought you to the Institute? And what do you love most about working here? Yes, those are absolutely the the things that brought me into the Institute. What I love, you know, the collegiality of the Institute and the fact that I can interact with people who have somewhat different perspectives and bring knowledge that that I don't have. For example, costs and benefits of taking breaks if you're a bus driver. I would never have thought about that as a behavioral economics decision-making problem. So that's really exciting. But I think the other thing that excites me about, uh, about working with people at the Institute is the problems are important. And, uh, and you can see that they are critical to our, our everyday lives. And, and 
you know, I think everybody who's a basic scientist wants to be able to see that their work is going to be meaningful and help improve people's existence. And, and I think the problems that the Institute members deal with, it's easy to see how basic research can feed into those. It's so great to be able to see how all your areas of research are able to contribute to the larger sort of mission of the Institute, just in order to make the workplace a better place for all of us to be, since we spend so much of our time here. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us, Dr. Mitchell. That was a blast. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. You're listening to What's Work Got to Do With It, your go-to resource on all things workplace safety, health, and well-being. This has been an episode of our podcast series where we invite you into the conversation as we discuss how our workplace conditions like work hours, occupational stress, job safety, and other issues affect our lives at home and at work. We go into the science behind it all and talk about what we can do to reduce work-related risk and promote well-being. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is a production of the Oregon Institute of Occupational Health Sciences and is hosted and directed by Helen Chuckers, Sam Greenspan, and Anjali Ramishbabu. Our mission at the Oregon Institute of Occupational Health Sciences is to improve the lives of workers through biomedical and occupational research. Home to over 75 scientists and research staff, the Institute explores a range of questions related to the prevention of work-related injury and disease and promotion of health in the workplace. Do you have an idea for a podcast episode? Want to hear from you on important workplace issues that you would like to discuss? Email us at occhealthsci at ohsu.edu. Subscribe to the Oregon in the Workplace blog or our social media channels at facebook.com slash occhealthsci.ohsu or follow us on Twitter at OHSU Occhealth to stay updated on current research, resources, news, and community events.